This is an interview I've conducted with Eric Pelton, who is the founder of Eric M. Pelton & Associates, an intellectual property boutique law practice established in 1999. His extensive trademark experience includes more than 1,700 U.S. trademark applications, dozens of trademark trial and appeal board disputes, and practice before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Circuit Court. Eric was a trademark examining attorney for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and for the last several years he has helped build and sustain strong brands for hundreds of businesses across the U.S. and abroad. He has also assisted numerous small business clients in obtaining positive results in trademark disputes for large companies. So good morning, Eric. Good morning, Chad. Great to be with you. Thanks for that great introduction. Great to be here. I have so many questions that both myself and many of my clients oftentimes struggle with when it comes to copyright and trademark. Could you first talk about what is the focus of your firm and unique expertise in that area? Great. The focus of our firm is working with businesses of all varieties and all sizes to protect their intellectual property. And we do all types of intellectual property except for patents. And predominantly, that means we deal with trademarks and copyrights. Now, what are trademarks and copyrights? Well, trademarks are really anything that has to do with your brand and how you market yourself um, from logos to business names to domain names to social media issues now. Um, Trademarks can even be really creative things like sounds or shapes in certain um, certain types of businesses. And copyright has to do with everything that has to do with content. And as I, I know Chad knows, because you're a master of generating content, content is everywhere these days. And you know, content online, content in articles, newsletters, websites, photos, videos, podcasts, all these types of content raise potential copyright issues. Articulate just a little bit further the key distinguishing factor between copyright and trademark. Copyright originally was a work of art, a work of creativity. A sculpture, a painting, a piece of music is a, co- is a copyrightable work. Now that's extended where you have you text, computer code, video, photo. All of those creations of content are copyrightable materials. Trademarks are more focused, tangible things that you that one business uses to identify itself or its products or its services and to differentiate itself from its competitors. So a trademark, for example, uh, could be the Nike swoosh is a very well-known trademark. That symbol um, is part of their brand and is protected worldwide so that no other clothing company, presumably, could use a design very similar to that on their tags or their labels to identify the source of the design. Because if you saw, let's say, you know, if you turn on television and you see a golfer wearing that emblem on their hat or on their shirt, you, you know that that represents that that was made by Nike and that they're you know, perhaps endorsed by Nike and says something about the quality of the goods or the, the type of the goods and where you might go to shop for those goods. Slogans are also types of trademarks like good to the last drop, uh, you know, a well-known coffee slogan. But they can even be 
more creative, and this is where you get a little bit into overlap with copyright, where you have something like a sound like the chimes of NBC that that um, are very well known for decades. Those those I think it's three or four musical notes is actually a trademark because if you were flipping through the the television channels and you didn't know what channel you were on, but you heard that sound. Um, viewers have come to identify that with NBC because it's unique to them. And so that's actually a trademark. Now, there could be some copyright protection in the, in the music as well. So when we talk about trademark, there's the TM, but I, I'm also aware of an SM. What's the difference between an SM to a TM? Am I getting too technical here? No, this is a great question. People overlook this or, and, can, and or confuse it all the time. Um, but the answer is fairly simple once you know. TM is means trademark, and that technically only means when it, it should be attached to a physical product or service. So, a coffee cup, you know, the brand, uh, the the name or the logo on there could use TM, or a tire, or a computer monitor. But when you're providing a service then what you have is technically a service mark, and you should use SM to identify it, unless it's registered. For both of these, once it's registered, you would use the R with a circle. But if you don't have a registration or if you're in the application process, you would want to use TM or SM to properly identify the, we call them broadly all trademarks, but trademarks for products or service marks for services. Examples of services would be consulting, speaking, almost any web-based service, well, only almost any web-based application or providing of services is really a service because there's nothing physical, tangible that the consumer would grab onto um, and hold. So almost anything on the web would be an SM, providing legal services or accounting services. Those are all service marks and they should be identified with the SM. And then once fully registered, then I put the R symbol next to it, right? Correct. Once registered with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, then you would be able to use the R with a circle to designate that it's a registered trademark. And that enhances your protection. It enhances the value. It has a lot of benefits. I've been told years ago that when I write articles and I publish them on my website or elsewhere, it's good enough for me to protect myself by just putting the copyright symbol on the bottom. Is this true, or do I need to consider protecting myself further by doing something else? This is generally true. The most important thing, the most important step in copyright protection is putting that proper notice on each piece of unique content. So whether it's a blog post or an article or a video, um, copyright notice such as, you know, today I would use, for example, the C with a circle, the year 2011, and then the owner of the copyright, Eric M. Pelton and Associates, PLLC, my corporate name, and then period, and then the phrase all rights reserved, period. Uh, the all rights reserved has some important international protections in other countries. Um, by doing this, by using this copyright notice, you are putting others on notice and you are making sure that you have some of the protections that are available just by having created the work and given that notice. You can get additional protection by registering it. Um, and the key thing in registering it is to be available to get 
serious damages against somebody who copies it. However, because of the cost of of lawsuits and the amount of content that's generated, it, it it's not really practical for most people to copy, to file, to register every single thing they create. What I would suggest is identifying a handful of things every year that best capture what you do or are the most valuable assets that you've created in that year and registering them. So for example, whenever um, somebody relaunches a website, you know, totally over overhauls the design and has a whole new design, I believe that that is a great time to register that package for the website. Um, of course, the website's going to be updating all the time these days. You don't need to, to, to re-register it every month. Um, same thing if you publish, you know, for example, an ebook or a white paper that is, you know, one of your core pieces of content and is distributed a lot, that may be worth registering because the government registration fees for copyright are very accessible. They're about $50 and the registration form is not terribly difficult to do on your own. Great. So a couple of follow-up questions to what you just shared with us. Uh, I also seen sometimes that rather than reflecting the current year for the copyright message on the bottom, I've seen sometimes people say, in our example, 2005-2011, uh, is there a benefit to have a range of years or not? There's there's not a huge benefit. I mean, if the content has evolved over time, then technically that would probably be the proper way to do it. So if I launch a new website now, but it's got a lot of content and text and maybe some photos that go back to the prior versions, uh, you know, the copyright in that old text or that old photo really was created at the time that, that, that those materials were first published. So technically, it would probably be proper to then say copyright 2005 to 2011 or whatever the applicable dates are. That's why you see people doing that. Um, if it's a totally new work and it's published for the first time, then you just put the, the year that it was created in. Very good. So say myself or a client of mine uh, recognize that there is a strong probability that, number one, our content has been copied, uh, or possibly our design has been copied, which actually has happened to me. Um, what, what is one to do? Uh, what's your recommendation before getting an attorney like you involved? Well, uh, I mean, honestly, you're probably fairly quickly going to want an attorney to get involved to get a second opinion. Um, but I think you want to measure, you know, how serious is the copying? Is it a uh, you know, a bits and pieces, or is it substantial? And is it identical, or is it just fairly similar? If it's substantial and it's identical or nearly identical, then there very well may be a problem um, that needs to, you know, that needs to move to the next level. Um, especially with content, content is easier because content is more tangible to to describe and to look at and to isolate exactly what's unique about it and what's protected. Content, it's easier to make a case when content has been copied. With a design, you know, there's a little bit more nuance, a little bit more vagueness to explaining what's similar about two designs in general. Sometimes a copy is so striking, you know, that it's pretty obvious 
where it came from and that it was a copy. Um, but in general, I think design is a little bit more nuanced than content. So the first step would be to, the first step would be to document it because things change all the time, and so you want to make sure that you capture what they did at that point. So if they change it for the better or for the worse, you have a record of it and keep that file. And um, then, you know, your options are either to talk to an attorney and have them write what's called a cease and desist letter, a demand letter, or, you know, to approach them yourself and see if you can work it out. Obviously, this could be easily become a global problem. So with some countries being possibly harder to reach, um, I'm just curious, what, what can we do? There may be nothing you can do, unfortunately. I'm not an expert on international issues, um, but you're right. It's a lot harder to reach people, to identify them. You know, their, their, their legal systems oftentimes don't have the same protections that we do. Um, so it may sometimes be a, a lost cause or a losing battle. However, one tool that can be effective in certain instances is to find out who's hosting the website, assuming this is an, an internet-based thing, obviously. And then you can sometimes get the host involved in the infringement and get them to take action to shut down the website. That's great. What have you seen to be perhaps the most common legal mistakes that business owners make? Two things I would put there. The first is not taking care of their trademarks. By that, I mean not thinking when they develop a new brand name or a new product name about whether or not there's a conflict, not doing a little bit of research up front to make sure that it's original and unique. And then assuming that they've launched a new product or brand name, or even if they have one that's been around for a long time, not protecting it properly. You know, a lot of people think, well, what's the worst that could happen to me or... Uh, you know, I've already been using it for so long now, you know, I don't really see why I need to register it. And while you don't need to register it, there's no requirement that you register it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It not only enhances your legal protection, but being in their database and using that R with a circle register trademark symbol helps eliminate potential infringements before they even happen when other people now find you when they're coming up with new names and they say, oh, you know, I can't use Chad Bar Group, you know, something similar to that because they see now it's in their database. Now, maybe they would have found it on the web as well, but if it's in the, the trademark, Patent and Trademark Office's database and when they go to your website, it's very clearly displayed as a brand, as a trademark with a registered trademark symbol, they get the message right away you can't mess with this brand. You can't mess with this trademark or it's going to cause you problems and cost you money. So while it's a little bit of an investment to to do this properly, it's sort of an insurance policy for your brand. It also makes it makes your brand more important, more significant, and more valuable if you ever want to license content or materials, if you ever might sell your business or get investors or partners. When you have a registered trademark, same as when you have a registered copyright as well, really, you have a tangible asset now. It's got a number from the government, a recognition. It's got, you know, you know a certificate, and you can even assign value to that uh, as an asset listed, you know, in the company's assets, among many other things.
The second mistake is is people trying to do it themselves. It's not impossible to do yourselves, but it's not easy either. And if you make mistakes, they can be significant mistakes that you lose your government filing fees, you get a registration, but it's not really proper and it doesn't really do you any good if there ever is a dispute because there were mistakes made in the application process, or it gets rejected and it ends up costing you more money to try to fix it than if you had used an attorney from the start. Those are the those are the mistakes I see every day. <laughs> there is a huge benefit in my mind for people to deal with experts like you rather than trying to do it themselves and pay the price later on. And it sounds to me, from what you're describing, the vulnerability for a business owner could be huge, such as using a name for for the product that could become extremely successful, only to find out later on that that name of the product is used and was registered by someone else. Yeah, a, a great example that's been in the news lately. You know, Apple just unveiled their iCloud service. Well, mm-hmm. There are several companies that have been using iCloud for a variety of services for several years. Um, some of them have registrations, some of them don't. The ones who don't reg- have registrations have much less leverage in trying to f- sort this out with Apple. The ones who do have registration have more leverage, but if their registrations are not proper, then they might have even worse leverage than if they had nothing. So, and then of course, there's the other thing of Apple, you know, making a decision to adopt a name that it knows really isn't unique. That's sort of a unique situation because Apple is so big and has so much money and can create so much recognition for a name overnight um, that this isn't the first time they've run into this problem and they, they kind of just spend their way out of it. Those people may be in a world of trouble or maybe in a world of benefit financially, but it, it depends on what they did in advance before knowing about this situation to protect themselves. So what is one to do? Say, uh, I use the copyright or possibly some form of registration, and all of a sudden someone says, I've done it before you. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've been accused of an infringement, you know, you most certainly would want to consult an attorney. And some of the things that are going to be factors there are, you know, again, how similar are the materials? What are other people doing? Is this something that somebody claims is unique, but if you look deeply, you know, there's 20 other people who have written similar materials over the last few years. And was there access to the materials by the person who is now claimed to have infringed it? For example, if hypothetically in this situation somebody created a chart that, that's now being claimed to be an infringement, if that the person who created a chart the, the week before the chart was published had sat in a seminar given by the person who claims they originally developed the materials in which the chart was displayed, you know, that's not going to, to look good and not going to be good legally for the, pers- the second person who made the chart. But if they had never crossed paths before, you know, that's a different story. All my clients develop provocative and great intellectual property in many formats between written content and uh, podcasts and videos and the charts we talked about. What's your guideline? How much can I adapt from others? How much do I have to change in order to make sure that the copyright completely belongs to me? Great question. There are very few original ideas. If you look at stories in books and and movies, right, the story of Romeo and Juliet, that, that theme plays out over and over again. 
in a variety of stories. And nobody can own an idea, a concept. All they can own is the tangible documentation of that in an audio or video or article or, or website or whatever it is. Taking an idea and rewriting it and modifying it you know, to make it your own, in my mind, is completely permissible. So where people get into trouble is they say, well, I'll just cut and paste and start with what they had and then I'll modify it some, and then they kind of forget how much they modified or they didn't modify it, and then you know there's big chunks that haven't been changed at all, and that's where it's clear that you took somebody's idea and their content, and you tried to change the content a little bit, but you didn't do a very good job at it. The drive-through window in fast food. Somebody came up with that. It was a great idea. I don't remember which chain of franchises it was, but they can't own the idea of other people having a fast food window. Technically, they might be able to get a patent or some other intellectual property design on the exact specifications of the kind of fast drive-through window that they had. But they still couldn't stop somebody else from coming up with and using a drive-through window that was configured a little bit differently, you know, and didn't look exactly the same. Nobody can really own the ideas. Everybody can write about them, video them, whatever they want, as long as the expression of the ideas is their own. Help me as a business owner decide, when is it clear indication I have to call you? Sure. I would look at the, the bottom line, the cost-benefit analysis. And so if this is something that is going to generate thousands of dollars in revenue over the next few years, in all probability, then it's worth it. Because you don't want somebody else taking it and generating even more revenue, or you don't want problems to arise after you, say, begin to market this idea or this program. After a year of starting to sell a lot and getting some publicity and some news coverage, all of a sudden to find out that there's a problem and that you might have to make changes and sort of undo all of that marketing gravity that you've done up to that point. For a trademark, you know, you're looking at between $1,000 and $1,500 to protect for a copyright. With an attorney, you're looking at a few hundred dollars. Like I said, a copyright is a little bit easier to do on your own, and the filing fee is about $50. So if you're talking about something that's going to generate thousands of dollars of revenue, it's probably worth it. If you're talking about something that's going to generate tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue, it's definitely worth it. It's almost a type of insurance. So whether it's creating a company name, whether it's uh, creating a tagline for my company, coming up with uh, a new software solutions, a new app, perhaps even the name of my new upcoming workshop, and the content, all those kind of concepts for me as a consultant, uh, speaker, author, should be submitted for an attorney like you to review before I go ahead and execute, right? I would agree with your summary there 100%. Yes, and for example, I've got an, an app that I developed. I came up with a, a name for it. I registered the name. I've got a um, newsletter that I send out at least once a month. I came up with a name for that. I've registered and protected the name for that. I've got a blog with a different name. protected the name for that. And I've got a new website about to launch, and I've already made plans to file the copyright uh, registration for the new website once it's published. So all of those types of things that you identified are the types of things that consultants and speakers and other professionals should be thinking about protecting.
That's great. How would you identify the perfect profile of the customers you're trying to attract, and what is the best way for them to contact you? My perfect customer is an entrepreneur, a small or medium-sized business with a interest in innovation and technology and the internet and social media, because those are all things that I have a lot of experience working with. And um, we work with clients who have one trademark. We work with clients who have dozens of trademarks, you know, a portfolio of brands. So it doesn't matter how small or how big your portfolio is. What matters is that you take steps to start to protect it. And even if you have a big portfolio and you don't have a big budget, we can work with clients to sort of identify what the priorities are and work within their budget to get the maximum results and protection and value within that budget. People can find me everywhere online. My name is spelled Eric, E-R-I-K, Pelton, P is in Peter, E-L-T-O-N. My website is ericpelton.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, all of those things under either Eric Pelton or TM for Small Biz with the, with the number four in the middle there. And uh, it's very easy to find me. It's fabulous. All of us get involved in interviews like this. When you or us record such interview, do we need to do something to make sure that we still theoretically or not theoretically, legally own the copyright to this wisdom and content shared so we don't find out that all of a sudden our interview gets sold by someone else? Thoughts, feedback on that? A great, a great example, sure. Um, at the end of this, when you're doing your closing, I would recommend that you state that this is a copyright 2011 by your company, all rights reserved, as I noted earlier. And then when you post it, I would put right above or right below the link to download it or the link to play it, a little note with the copyright notice. Reminder, this podcast is a copyright 2011 of Chad Barr group um, type of thing. And that way nobody can claim that they didn't know that it was a copyright when they downloaded or when they did something with the file without ever opening the file because it was right there in order to download the, the, the file. You had to basically see that message. On a free podcast on a blog, it may not be a big deal because we may be trying to distribute it as far and wide as we can. But if you were recording this and people were paying paying good money to listen in and you were going to sell it as a download online or through iTunes, then having that protection takes on an even greater importance because if somebody copied it and was distributing it for free, that would be a much more critical situation. So you would want to make sure that you had definitely used the notice. So just to illustrate or clarify one more point, obviously in this interview, Chad Barr is interviewing Eric Pelton. So when it appears on my blog and website, there'll be the copyright Chad Barr. But don't I also have to give you the copyright because you're the owner of your intellectual property with the answers you gave me? No, because I mean the intellectual property is in the is in the recording, and since you set it up and you're hosting it, so to speak, you own the copyright. Now we may have an agreement that we reached beforehand or after that you give me a free license to distribute it on my blog and website uh, however I want, which is great, but it still would be your recording, and so you would own the 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 content of the recording. 
my words, of course, in some way, I own my words. But like I said, you know, I don't own the ideas that I talked about. Nobody owns them. And so the the only real ownership is in the recording itself and the recording you would own. That's great. Eric, before I ask you the final question, I, I definitely want to take the, the time or the opportunity to thank you uh, for your willingness to do this, for your generosity of sharing your ideas. Uh, you're truly an expert, and uh, I've enjoyed this immensely, as I know uh, will be the listener of this podcast in the future. So, so thank you for this. And with that in mind, what is the final advice you would suggest or give to a business owner, an entrepreneur out there, from a legal perspective to make sure that they're doing what they're doing successfully to avoid legal battles in the future and to have a peace of mind at the end of the day. Great. And and thank you for having me. I've uh, enjoyed our discussion. Uh, excellent questions, including this last question. What I recommend, and this is sort of how I, how I close many of my presentations uh, to business groups, is make a task of every six months or so sitting down for a half an hour, make a list of what your most important intellectual property assets are in terms of brand names, logos, slogans, articles, white papers, blogs, whatever they are. Make a list of, uh, of all of them or of at least the most important ones and then say, am I using these properly? Am I using the right symbols? Am I using the copyright notice on all of these things? And have I thought about registering the most important ones. If I have the budget, registering all of the important ones. If I have a more limited budget, you know, have I thought about what can I do to protect the two or three most important ones within that budget? If we do that every six months or so, that's a way to, to stay on top. And it's also a nice way to step back and say, wow, you know, look at all of this intellectual property I have and how it all fits in with each other and how it's evolving over time. And so it's nice from a marketing and strategic uh, standpoint as well. But I would, for me, the primary purpose is from a, a legal standpoint to evaluate, am I using these things properly? Am I giving proper notice? And have I thought about registering the ones that I can? Eric, I've learned so much today. You're absolutely a true expert. Thank you again. And uh, not only will I be contacting you with help from my firm, I know that many of my clients and uh, prospective clients will call you as well. Thank you again. Thank you, Chad. Thank you.